We're going to be reading out of three different uh, sections of God's Word this morning. Uh, we're going to read from uh, starting in John 15, and then jump to Galatians 5, and then end in Ephesians uh, 1. So John 15, 26 is where we're going to start. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Continuing in, uh, in chapter 16. These things I have spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will shew you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall shew it unto you. All things that the Father hath art mine, therefore I say, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall shew it unto you. And then if we can move ahead a little bit to Galatians five fifteen. So Galatians five fifteen through the end of the chapter. But if ye bite and devour devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed of one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one, contrary the one to the things, sorry, contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do things that ye would do. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such of the like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. And if you could move ahead to Ephesians 1.10, please. Ephesians 1.10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Would you please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to uh, worship the Lord together through his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, through the Spirit, make your book live. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior. Lord, what we do not know, teach us. What we need and do not have, give to us. And what we are not, Make us for Jesus Christ's sake. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. We're, um, I think, installment five now. For the past several weeks, we've been going through a preaching series on the gospel markers. And just a little uh, background, the goal of the teaching series, why we're taking some time to go through these gospel markers, is they are, you know, those flag posts and those evidences of the gospel around us and in our lives and so the goal of the teaching of this series is help us first all better know the gospel. Right? So there's teaching just in terms of what the gospel is, so we all might better know it. There's also then the goal that we, in knowing the gospel, would love the gospel. Right? That this would stir our hearts to, as we see the wonder of the gospel on display, that we would more deeply love God and the gospel that he's given us. And then finally, share the gospel. Right? So now that we know the gospel and we love it, we certainly would like to be then motivated, right, to share the gospel, to share the good news with others. So, so far up to this point, uh, the preaching has looked, the first sermon was the problem of sin. The second was the solution of Jesus Christ. The third was the fact that the believer is in Christ, looking at what it means to be in Christ. And then finally, last week, we looked at what it means to have fellowship with Christ, right? So... This week now, we're moving on to another gospel marker, and the gospel marker for this Sunday is the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So the gospel marker this Sunday that we're going to look is at the power of the Holy Spirit and how it relates to the gospel. This is not going to be an exhaustive teaching on the Holy Spirit. I think that would take a series in amongst itself. So we're taking a closer look at the Holy Spirit, especially in three areas where it relates to the gospel. Um, What I want to do, though, is let's think about the word gospel. I want to put it in context of the time period. Because if we think about our modern time, when you hear the word gospel, right, you probably think of the good news, right, that Jesus died, was buried, was resurrected, and is the substitution, the acceptable substitution for our sins, right? In the modern context, the word gospel makes us think of the particular good news that's put forward about Jesus Christ in the Bible. Well, let's rewind, though, to the time of the writers, right? This gospel of Christ is just going forward here. So they wouldn't have had this strong association of the word gospel with Jesus Christ, like we do today. Really, at that time, what the gospel was, was was good news, was great news. It typically was a proclamation that came from the king. It was carried into the town by a herald on a scroll, right? And they would gather everyone around, right? Hear ye, hear ye, right? The word of the king or the word of the ruler of this area, right? And they would hold it up, and it would often be news of a great victory, It was good news. It was great news. It was news of a victory that was won that brought security, peace, whatever, to the people of that town. Now, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have radio. They didn't have various mobile devices. So they needed some way of knowing that the message was authentic. They could not easily authenticate the message independently. They'd have to send somebody back you know, 200 miles to to the seat of government to find out what this message was and if it was true. So it was very important that when the herald came that the people would have confidence in the letter. So typically they would have a series of these all made up the same and as they would come into the town, they would call everybody there and in the front of everybody, for all to see, they would break open the seal. The seal on the message. And that way the people knew. They could see the seal, had the imprint of the king, Right? It, was the, it was the work of the king, it was the word of the king to the people, and they could see it was authentic because it had been sealed by the king himself. So that's very important, and we think about this, this way the gospel works, because that's going to relate very strongly now to, to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a very critical role in verifying the gospel. In fact, we saw in one of these verses, and we'll look at it, talks about the Holy Spirit being a seal. It uses actually that name for him. So he plays a very critical role in verifying the gospel. He is an active agent of God's power. And this morning we're going to look at three ways that the Spirit's power seals and advances the gospel. Three ways that the Spirit's power seals and advances the gospel. The Spirit has the power to convict and lead. The Spirit has the power to transform. And the Spirit has the power to secure. The Spirit has the power to convict and lead. The Spirit has the power to transform, and the Spirit has the power to secure. Now, before we dive too much farther, I just want to give a little frame of reference about the Holy Spirit and who and what he is. The Holy Spirit is God. He has all the attributes and the nature of God, just as Jesus did. The Holy Spirit is part of that, what we call often the Trinity, a, a triunity of God. And as God, he has all the characteristics of God, including being a distinct person in being. Okay? I, I think in places in Scripture, it speaks of him as a spirit and as of a ghost. 
and what I don't want us to do is make our mind think that the spirit's this kind of ethereal vapor out there or some kind of underlying current of power. Right? He is a person, right? Just as much as Christ and God have that aspect of what we'd call a distinct person within God. Okay? So let's anchor our thoughts about the Holy Spirit there. So with that, turn with me to John 15, uh, verse 26, and we'll begin there. Looking at the first point, the, powers convict, the power that the Holy Spirit has to convict and lead to salvation. The power to convict and lead to salvation. So here in John, as we come to the chapter, these are Christ's final words to the disciples. Right? These are, he is very close to the cross at this point, and this is his final words of instruction. But also very much, as if you just start to read through here, John 14, 15, 16, you know, 17, they're words of encouragement, too. Right? He wants them to be encouraged. In fact, we saw, as we place it in context, he's speaking of trials and tribulations that will come their way. But in 15, verse 26, he says, though, when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. And he also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit is being sent. He's telling them in this words of encouragement, he says the Spirit's in coming. In fact, he calls the Spirit one who will bring them comfort, right? a comforter. Right? So as he's speaking these words of encouragement to comfort, he's giving them a tangible example. Right? God is going to comfort you in and through this time. And the Spirit will do a couple things. The Spirit will testify of Christ, we see here, and the Spirit will cause them to testify of Christ. So for the gospel to go forward, right, the Spirit declares it, and then those who have the gospel declare it as well. And so what will the Spirit testify of? What are one of those things? Well, turning forward just a little bit, 16, verse 8. Okay, one way we see in 16, 8, that the Spirit is sent by God in Christ. It says, and when he is come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will reprove the world. Okay, so reprove is not a very common word. I, I don't open up many things and see the word reprove. In fact, it's not very common even within the pages of Scripture. It's a very uh, precise word, though, and it's very purposefully placed here. When he says reprove, think of expose and convict. So to reread that, he will expose and convict the world of sin. Right? The Holy Spirit's role, one of the reasons he's sent, is to expose and convict. Think like a judge or a prosecuting attorney in the, in the courtroom. Right? The, the, the Spirit is there to bring out the evidence, right? to bring out the proof, to expose what's going on, to show the truth of the situation. And in this case, he's showing the situation of the world. He will come and reprove the world. And he reproves the world of three things. And we're going to look at each of those three. He reproves the world of sin. He reproves the world of righteousness. And he convicts or reproves the world of judgment. So let's look first. We get some better description of this in the subsequent verses. First of sin, looking in verse 9. It says of sin, because they believe not in me. If sin, because they believe not of me. This is not sin in general that it's speaking of here. A very specific sin is mentioned. So the Spirit certainly does convictive sin, but here it's one particular sin that's important 
that the conviction, that the exposing of comes, and that is that they believe not on me. Because church, as we think about it, the one sin without remedy, right? Christ died for the sins of the world, but the one sin without remedy is to deny Jesus Christ. That is the one sin you can have in your life that has no remedy. We have no remedy for sin without him. And that is the sin the Spirit comes to convict men of. It's to convict us if we've refused to trust in Christ alone for our salvation. The Spirit comes to convict of that sin. And that starts the path towards salvation. There's a second thing the Spirit convicts of, and it says of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. I go to my Father and you see me no more. There's also the conviction of righteousness, because it's not enough just to see that we've sinned, right? When we stand before the Lord one day, we don't want to stand as just a pardoned convict, right? There's one other aspect that the death of Christ accomplished, and that's to bring the righteousness of Christ upon us. So that's the second conviction, right? is once we know our sinful state, then we know we're guilty, and we know we need righteousness to stand before the Lord. And so he convicts of righteousness, right? Because you see me no more, right? Christ has left, right? But it makes us know that we need his righteousness. The Holy Spirit helps me see the need for the righteousness of Christ in my life and not stand before God as just a pardoned criminal but one in need of righteousness. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. If you turn there. Philippians 3, 8 and 9 speaks of this as well. The writer Paul is speaking, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So the Spirit also stirs within the world Right, this need, this understanding of the need and the desire for righteousness, for the righteousness of Christ in our lives. So we've got conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, and now conviction of judgment. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Of judgment, because the prince of this world, look at the verb tense there, is judged. I think often we think of judgment as something out in the future. Right? Christ will return and judgment will come. Well, this speaks of judgment being currently. The world is judged. So what it's showing there is that an unredeemed man, right, a man without Christ, we stand guilty before the Lord for our sin right now. It's not this future date. It's not somewhere out there. Someday God will come right, and there'll be judgment. For the unrepentant sinner, judgment sits on them right now, in the present. It's not a future state that's coming. So those are things the Spirit comes to convict of. So the Spirit powerfully brings reproof and conviction of the sin of the denial of Christ, of our need for the righteousness of Christ, and of the current state of judgment that we would sit under without Christ. 
But you know, the Spirit does more than just point out the issues and leave us wondering about what to do next. He leads us also to truth. John 16, turn back there. Going on in verses 12 through 14. Christ speaking again. He says, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Right? There are going to be more things said and written in the pages of Scripture, but they're going to come later. But he says, How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that he shall speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, he shall receive of mine, and shall show it to you. So he's called the Spirit of truth, right? So the Spirit also comes not only to convict, but to show the solution, right? To show the truth of the gospel. He speaks the truth about Christ, right? Not his own, but he speaks the truth about Christ, about Christ's glory, about Christ's return. So the Holy Spirit is the teacher that we and others need of the truths of salvation and for the abundant life that goes beyond salvation that we've been talking about in previous weeks. The same Spirit that inspired the authors to write this leads us to the truth that's in the Word. The same Spirit that caused all those to pen what's in here is the Spirit that dwells in you and will reveal the truth of the Word to you. So conviction of our sinfulness and the truth of Christ, the solution needed for salvation, all come through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, are you convicted in your heart of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment? Has the Holy Spirit brought that conviction into your life? And do you know by the Spirit the truth of the gospel? If the answers to both of those are yes, I ask you, have you responded? Have you responded? Have you accepted that truth? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The Spirit has come. He's revealed the need. Right? You have sin. We have judgment. We need righteousness. And Christ is the only remedy for that. And placing our faith and trust in him places us as an adopted child of God. Are you there this morning? And if you are not, will you respond to what the Spirit's speaking to you right now? And I use the words right now. I caution you, don't turn away. Don't put it off. We see with many in the Bible when they put something off, their heart hardens and the opportunity is gone. I want to encourage you, you are under judgment right now and the matter is very urgent for you. Will you respond? Will you seek out a parent? Will you speak out, seek out one of the elders? Will you seek out a brother and sister in Christ and, and settle what the Spirit is doing, what the power of the Spirit wants to do? in your life this morning. Don't put it off. Now for the believers here this morning who are looking to witness, 
right? Now that you're reminded of the issue of sin, the need of righteousness of others, and the judgment that sits upon them currently as they walk, right? if that stirred you to want to witness and spread the gospel and be one of the heralds, right? We are a herald of the gospel like those heralds of the early day. The Spirit has all the power you need to do this. Right? You need to do this. We need to do this in the power of the Spirit. So the question is, are you working in concert with the Spirit in your witness? We see the Spirit's work. It's the convictor. Right? Are we working in concert with the Spirit? We see the Spirit will bring the truth needed. The Spirit has the power here. Are we walking in step and in line with the Spirit? The Holy Spirit has the power to convict and to lead to salvation, to a new life in Christ, for Christ. So in the second section, let's take a look at what this new life looks like. So turn over, Galatians 5. And let's look at the Spirit's power to transform. So once the Spirit has entered into a life, transformation is needed to live the gospel. And the Spirit has that power to transform. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Spirit gives victory. Oh, sorry, that's the heading. For the Spirit lusteth after the, for the flesh lust after the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here in Galatians, the writer Paul is making us aware of a battle. There's a battle raging. It rages within each believer. Right? To walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, or to walk in the flesh. It's important to this is the knowledge that upon salvation, though, the Holy Spirit lives within the believer. So at the moment of salvation, we see evidences. Think about the instances we saw in Acts last summer. When they believed, they began to speak, right? The Holy Spirit stirred them to speak, right? We see the Spirit entering when conversion happens. So we were operating from this premise that the believer has the Spirit dwelling within him. You know, the gospel is for right now, right? It's not for waiting for heaven. It's not checking the box and saying, good, I'm a believer and things are going to get better someday when Jesus returns. I mean, certainly they will. And we need to long and hope for that day but we don't just need to muddle our time away here and grind our time out here. We have the indwelling spirit. We have the gospel for living right now. We can live a full, abundant, joyful life in the spirit right now. We're told, even within the scriptures, that we should be, even as believers, speaking this gospel to each other, encouraging, stirring each other to go up to good works. And I think of Steve's last couple sermons, right, speaking about this you know, new life that we have in Christ and the fellowship and the way we walk in fellowship in Christ and what it means to be in Christ. And God desires all that for all of us right now, not somewhere out in a future day. Because Galatians 5 gives us a stark contrast if we were to walk without the Spirit or if we were to walk with the Spirit. So first, walking without the Spirit. Look in verse 19, Galatians 5:19. Now the works of the flesh... Right? So this is the evidence of operating in the flesh or manifest. Which are these? 
adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Right? Dot, dot, dot. And even more. But wait, there's more. That's not a list right, that we want associated with our life and the way we spend our time here on the earth. And I want you to notice a thing. It says the works of the, of the flesh. These are things we do. Right? These are works. These are efforts. These are things we strive and effort to do. How much better to live on the contrast of this verse, and now for the familiar part, I always have been thankful that God put the, put the warning of the flesh up there, and then we get to the part that we like to read, which is if we lock in the Spirit, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Love, joy, peace. I want you to notice a key word there. It didn't say the works of the Spirit. It said the fruit of the Spirit. Right? This is something that happens from within and comes out. Right? This isn't something we in our self-effort say, I'm going to be joyful today. Right? I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to stop being mumbly. I'm going to go complain about my schoolwork. And I'm going to be joyful today. That's a good resolution but if you're doing it in your own power, you're back to the works of the flesh, right? You're back to working, right? This is fruit, right? How better to say, Lord, I realize that I've been lacking joy. Right? Would you please stir that within me? Would you please help me have eyes to see how I can be thankful for you, for all you've done around me, and help me to walk in the joy that the Spirit will stir within me as I look for you. That's a lasting joy. Right? The other you put on, you put off. It depends on your circumstances. Right? The indwelling spirit gives the power to transform our thinking. It gives us the power to have this fruit in our life. And it outpours. It's an outpouring of grace from within. Right? The spirit brings God's grace within us and helps it pour out of us. It's talked about, we hear that, you know, the springs of living water flowing out from us in other places of scripture. Right? The spirit is that wellspring. But church, we do have a choice to make in the matter. Look at verses 17 and 18. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so we cannot do the things that we would. But if ye be led by the spirit, you are not under the law. We have a choice to make. There's a very key word in verse 18. But if you be led of the spirit. We've established the Spirit is indwelling us, but is it leading us then? Or is the flesh leading us? That if is very important. Right? The flesh and the Spirit are at war, and we need to decide if we will be led by the Spirit. And I encourage you to decide to be led by the Spirit. In fact, it goes on in verse 24 and says, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Hey, by being in Christ, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? the indwelling spirit, we can walk in victory. Right? It doesn't have to be this battle where one day the flesh wins and one day the spirit wins. Right? The spirit says we're in Christ and Christ has won that victory. Right? We can be free 
from that pull of the flesh completely, totally in Christ through the gospel with the indwelling Holy Spirit. The victory is won and we can go on and say, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Right? Christ has made the way for that to happen in our lives. The Holy Spirit has that power to transform the life of all believers. The Holy Spirit has the power to transform the life of all believers. So this morning, let me ask, how goes the battle for you? How goes the fight? We know we're in one. How goes the battle? Is the spirit or the flesh prevailing? Who's got the upper hand in your life? Because the spirit will prevail if you just let it. So my question would be also, though, which are you feeding more? If you feed the flesh more than the spirit, it'll get stronger. Right? Those of you who had animals or whatever, right? The one you feed more gets bigger, stronger. The one you feed less does not. So are you considering, as you think about which is prevailing, think about also which are you feeding on a regular basis? Are you feeding the spirit? Or are you feeding the flesh? Which are you feeding on a regular basis? And Christian, will you just be willing to stop resisting the Spirit and walk with him to see the gospel advance? Are you willing to do that? To let the Spirit prevail and walk with him to see the gospel advance? So we've seen two things now about the Spirit. We've seen the power to convict and instruct that brought this believer to salvation over in your past. We've seen his power to transform which allows you to live for God's glory right now in the present, but the power of the Spirit also reaches over here, out into the future. He reaches out into the future. And let's look at Ephesians 10, 1, 10. Just a page or so over. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 10, to look at the security of the gospel. Right? The security of the gospel. The Spirit has the power to secure the gospel. Why is that important? Why is that an important part, point to us? Well, we know there's this war going on between the spirit and the flesh, right? So at times, we find ourselves stumbling. We find ourselves failing, right? We find ourselves walking in the flesh. That occurs. And that often allows our enemy to plant a seed, the seed of doubt. Right? You're no good. Right? You're not good enough. You haven't measured up. You're not a believer. You're just pretending. You're just playing. And what that constant doubt does is it takes us out of the active service of the Lord and puts us on the sideline, right? Satan plants that doubt. That's one of his schemes to get us not to walk in the Spirit and advance the gospel. So the Spirit's power is a very important preventative of this. We look here in Ephesians. We're in the opening, the first chapter. It's in Paul's greeting to the Ephesians church. And he's writing the letter to provide encouragement to the believers in Ephesus, right? This is a letter of encouragement. As you read, hopefully read through the introduction, you see him speaking words of joy, of encouragement towards them. And right here in the opening, he's, in verse 10, he lets us know what one thing he wants to encourage them with, and that's the future. Look, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together into one all things in Christ, which are in heaven, which are on the earth 
even in him. So he's writing about Christ's return and Christ bringing back together everything that's in Christ. Does that include believers? Right? That was the gospel marker two weeks ago, right? We are in Christ as believers. So he's encouraging them and saying, Christ is going to return, Ephesian believer, and he's going to gather you to him one day. And all of you that are in Christ who have accepted the gospel. Going on in verse 13, let's see, have they really accepted the gospel? It says, in whom, speaking of Jesus, in Christ you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Right? So he is clearly speaking to believers here who have heard the truth, who have trusted Christ. And what's he telling them? He says, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption, the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. It's too important describing words about the Holy Spirit here. One may be recognized, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and it also talks about earnest of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at sealed first. So the seal here is, again, that stamp of authority, that stamp of legitimacy. In this case, it is a completed transaction. Right? When two people would sign a transaction in those days, they'd put a blob of wax on it and they'd put their seal in it. Right? And anyone who came and looked at that transaction again in the f- future would see that seal, it was like the signature, and know that that transaction was done. It was complete. Right? The terms were agreed to, met, and the agreement moves forward. It also shows ownership, right? Each person had a particular seal. Each king, each kingdom had its own seal that showed the king put his ownership on that. God now owns us. We're his adopted child, right? That's part of the seal. The other part of the seal is security, right? The sealing speaks of security. Remember when Christ died and the scribes and, Phari- or the, um, the scribes and Pharisees came to the Roman authority and said, seal the tomb, Right? Make it secure right? so his um, followers can't come and take his body away and say that he's risen. Right? There was this idea of sealing it, making it secure. In fact, we see it also in Ephesians 4.30. Just turn a couple pages over. Ephesians 4.30. Speaking again of the Spirit, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, where you are sealed until the day of redemption. Okay, there's a coming day, right? Redemption. Christ has purchased his church. He has purchased his bride with his blood. And there's a coming day when he's going to redeem that. That his purchase is going to be paid in full. And that's what it's talking about, is the spirit is the seal on us until Christ comes and paid in full. And we go on to heaven and glory to be with him. And extending that thought is this discussion of him being the earnest. Right? It said Christ is the earnest of that. Those of you who bought a house know exactly what earnest money is. Right? It says, I am intending, I am entering into this contract. Here is my good faith promise right? that I'm entering into this. It says, I agree to this contract. Here's kind of a down payment towards it. You know, God has made the payment that guarantees the transaction of our future redemption. Right? And that payment is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. God has made that payment. He is sealed on the contract. It is a done deal for the believer. And the Spirit's presence 
confirms and ensures that. Right? The Spirit's presence within the believer confirms and ensures our salvation. Folks, this is great news of the gospel. In the end, your salvation security is not based on your performance. Praise the Lord. Can I have an amen for that? I say amen to that. Right? My security for salvation is not based on my personal performance. It is based on God's promise and God's promise alone. God in his grace and mercy, fully aware of each of our weaknesses, sent Christ to secure our future. He sent Christ to secure our future. The Spirit has the power, church, to secure our salvation. And let's see how grateful Paul was for this as we read on in Ephesians 1, 14 and 15. Get there. Oh, excuse me, 15 and 16. Speaking of them being believers and being sealed with the Holy Spirit, he says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love of all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention to you in my prayers. There's great reason for celebration here about the gospel. The Spirit has the power to secure your salvation. So church, the promise is right here. It's in God's word. He has made it plain. Will you simply take God at his word and confidently live out the gospel in the spirit, knowing your future is secure? Will you, with a grateful heart for his promise, and show it by living like it is true? Will you confidently live out the gospel with the indwelling spirit, knowing your future is secure? And if you have a question about that security... Back to point one, right? Don't leave it lingering. Let's settle the matter today. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. But if you know that you know and the indwelling Holy Spirit was in you, is within you, take this as God's word to you, his word of encouragement, his word of strength, his word to have you walk with him, a promise that should affect the way we live. So as we conclude, God has a gospel. Right? Speaking back to that definition of gospel, God does have, as the king of the world, good news he wants the world to hear. Right? It's a message of great hope. It's a message of great joy. And it is, as the gospels were then, a message of victory of total and complete victory. It's a message that is sealed. It's authenticated by the Holy Spirit as a true message from the king to his people. And as I said, there's much more we could say about the Holy Spirit. But this morning, in these texts, we have seen how the power of the Spirit is crucial, sealed to the gospel, verifying and confirming the truth and the authority of God's gospel message. The Spirit does have power in the gospel. It has the power to convict and lead a sinner to saving grace. He, the Spirit, has the power to transform the life of that redeemed sinner into a life that glorifies God and advances and proclaims the gospel. And he has the power to secure the future reunion of that believer with the God who saved him through Christ. 
So before I pray to close, and as we pray, I want you to consider three things. Will you respond to the power for salvation? If you have not, will you respond to the power of salvation? Will you live the power to be transformed? Will you live in the power to be transformed? Will you rest in the power securely? Will you rest in the Spirit's power securely? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are faithful and true and that your word is truth. May the Spirit plant your truth in us to change us and to lead us to live out and proclaim to be a herald of the gospel for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.